It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I've got the great pleasure to have two very stellar co-hosts with me here today. First, I've got Quentin Grafton. Quentin is a professor here at Crawford School and also the editor-in-chief for Policy Forum. Hello, Quentin. Great to be here, Ulia. And I also got Bob Cotton here with me. Bob is a visiting fellow at the Crawford School and has had a distinguished career as an Australian diplomat. Hi, Bob. Good to have you here. Good morning, Julia. Great to be here with you again. Our regular listeners will know that each week we go over some of the most pressing policy issues. And of course, we are going to talk about the election on this podcast today. And I think everyone has heard a lot about it in the past weeks. So how about we hear from Bob what he has been hearing about this week? Thanks so much. Uh, One issue that has really got my attention this past week, outside of Australia, that is, is United States uh, attitudes towards Iran. Uh, Once again, we see Donald Trump as president being very aggressive, very on the front foot, very offensive to an important nation in the Middle East and always has been. And also brings to mind just what does the United States have in mind to do here? It is threatening to take Iran out, basically, unless it complies with the United States. That kind of policy doesn't really work terribly well, unsettles uh, the region completely, uh, runs the risk of being titled as playing to the Israeli playbook for strategy in the Middle East, and also makes Australians wonder a fair bit about just what does the alliance mean for us these days. I think what you're referring to here is the tweet that Donald Trump put out just a few days ago. And um, should we actually be more worried about this this time? As we know, Donald Trump is always a bit loud on his Twitter profile. I don't think more worried, but certainly significantly worried. This was the playbook that he tried with North Korea, and we still got to see how that one does play out in the end. Trouble with both of those nations is they are significant nations, particularly Iran, and they have the capacity to strike back in ways which we don't quite always appreciate or understand. So yes, we should be worried, but not more worried than before. Definitely something to keep our eyes on for now. Quentin, what was your on your radar this week? Look, uh, my radar is what's happening in India. They've just gone through uh, several weeks of uh, running an election, which is uh, an impressive event given they've got more than uh, a billion people there. And of course, those results are coming out in the next few days. The exit polls suggest that uh, Modi will be re-elected and will be the continuous prime minister, possibly with a with a with a majority. So we'll we'll wait and see. But that's a very big event, not just for us in Australia and in the region. I think globally, India is a, a very significant country, and what happens in India, the policies in India. 
and what they plan to do in the next uh, few years uh, under Modi if if he is uh, re-elected, uh, I think uh, matters a lot. Yeah, we had a wonderful piece on Policy Forum from James Mortensen on the role of WhatsApp in and social media more broadly in the Indian election. Quentin, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, these are big issues. Uh, they've been raised in the context of WeChat and the context of uh, the influence from China and then WhatsApp in the context that uh, people can enter these groups and provide uh, misleading information. But of course, misleading information can be provided directly by politicians and through other sources as well. So I think it just calls on all of us to be very careful when we receive some information, just to do some triangulation and confirm that that in fact is correct, that is in fact factually correct and not some fake news or whatever we want to call it. So I think that's uh, – and that's true whether we live in India or whether we live in Australia, whether we live in the United States. So I think that's a, that's a especially important in term, times of an election. Thank you very much, Quentin and Bob, for your thoughts on this. And we're going to get started with the pod in just a minute. But before we do so, we wanted to give you a quick insight into what we've actually been up to in the Facebook podcast group this week. It was, of course, all about the election this week. And many of you have submitted some really fantastic and excellent questions to us that we're definitely going to address today. And thank you so much for that. We're really looking forward to hearing our panel discuss the questions. Many of you were also wondering about the role of the media and democracies and why voters didn't seem so keen on pro uh, progressive policies this time. You've told us about your concerns about intergenerational inequality and why you thought it mattered that we bridge the gap between the young and the old. It was tremendously interesting to hear your thoughts on these things. And we're so grateful that you actually then you share all these thoughts with us and you're such a smart and engaged listener base. So if you're not a member of the podcast group yet, just Stop the podcast here just for a second. We won't go anywhere. Type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. Come on board and share your thoughts with us on what we should discuss next on the podcast. We always love hearing from you. This week, we've already had a fantastic podcast, A Democracy Sausage, discussing the result and the politics surrounding Australia's federal election. On this podcast, Mark Henney spoke to Maria Teflager and Kieran Gilbert about the Queensland backlash, the presidentialization of politics and whether Labour actually misjudged the mood of the electorate. So if you haven't listened to that yet, definitely give it a go after you've listened to this podcast. Today on the podcast, we want to turn away from politics and instead take a closer look at the policies promised by the coalition and the challenges the government might be facing in implementing them. If you have a go, you'll get a go. Despite opinion polls pointing towards a win for the Labour Party, in the end, the coalition carried away the win and will have another go at running the country from taxes to climate change. In the months to come, the government will also have to deliver on its policy promises. So today, we're going to have a look at some of those policies to see what's in store for the next years. We've got a great lineup of guests to discuss us today, haven't we, Quentin? We sure have, Ulia, and uh, we've got a dream team when it comes to policy in terms of the issues that were on the table during the election. So the first person is Warwick McKibben, and he's a professor and director at the ANU Centre for Applied Macroeconomic Analysis, that's KAMA, here at the Crawford School of the ANU, and he's also a fellow of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences. 
A second guest is uh, John Hewson. He's an honorary professorial fellow at the Crawford School. And of course, uh, to many of our listeners who will know him as the former leader of the Liberal Party of Australia and is also the chair of the ANU Tax and Transfer Policy Institute. Third person up is Liz Allen. She's an associate lecturer at the ANU Center for Social Research and Methods, and she is a national council member of the Australian Population Association. And last but most certainly not least, we have Paul Burke. He's an associate professor at the Crawford School, deputy head of the Aunt Corden Department of Economics, and the ANU Grand Challenge Project Leader of Zero Carbon Energy for the Asia-Pacific. Definitely a stellar lineup. It's going to get quite cosy here in the podcast studio. So very much looking forward to the discussion. Also a reminder to our listeners to get in touch with us on Facebook where we are Policy Forum Pod. Join our group there. Twitter where we are at Apps Policy Forum or do it the old-fashioned way and shoot us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. And also don't forget to stick around after the main interview because we'll be going over some of your comments, questions and suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, I'll hand over to my stellar co-hosts, Bob and Quentin, to talk to our panel. I'd like to say good morning to our participants on the panel this morning. Good morning, Paul. How are you? I'm very well. Good to How see you, you again. Fine, thanks. Thanks for having and me. And Liz, welcome again. How are you? I'm doing very well. Warwick, good morning. How are things going? Uh, good morning. Very well indeed. And John, hi. How goes it? I'm well, thanks. Let me ask you all, let's start off with the first big question. The coalition has taken a surprising win in this week's federal election. Now they have to deliver on their policy promises. I'd like to ask all of you in turn... What do you think the biggest policy challenge ahead for the old and new government now? John, I'm looking at you. <laughs> well, I think uh, he'll start with his tax package and try and get that through. Um, I imagine the Senate won't let him do it in one piece of legislation, may, maybe split it, and only the first part will get through. He certainly will break the election promise because that probably won't take effect by July 1. Um, I would think that he's got to make ground on climate irrespective of what he's actually said during the campaign. I think unless he delivers uh, you know, a pretty clear, I think, transition path on climate, I think that'll be a challenge. Uh, Morrison was pretty careful not to give too many other specific <laughs> policy commitments. It's the way I see it, and not much detail when he did announce anything. Okay, Warwick. You know, I think the climate issue is the key defining part of this election because uh, it was a key policy issue going into this debate and into the election. Um, the parties that did well were the parties that were pushing for climate policies that were rational, i.e. Um, Zadi Stegel, for example. And I think if Morrison wants to continue his long legacy, which he wishes to have, he really does need to have a clear, low-cost, transparent climate policy that will deliver the transition that we need. Yeah. You think it'd be pretty important to the Australian business community as well to be having that. They've been crying out for it for quite Absolutely. a while. And, and I think the answer is to, is to forget about the, the ridiculous propositions that have debated, that have been dominating the debate over the last decade. Go back to the, um, the sort of analysis that was done under John Howard, um, the Shergold report and the work that Mark, Martin Parkinson did in that report. That was the foundational stone. Forget about the Garner review approach. Go back to those core principles. And I think if you start there, you'll end up with a decent policy. Liz? Yeah, I'm going to go really fundamental and say that um, 
the the line that the government uh, took uh, prior to to winning this election was on population one of an incongruent line on immigration being bad, but at the same time recognition recognition that immigration was essential. We saw that in in the the forward estimates when it came to immigration intake. So that'll be interesting to see how how that narrative plays out, and they will have to. Uh, make moves um, of of unification to kind of uh, quell the fears around immigration because whether we like it or not, our immigration uh, um, uh, our economy uh, is uh, is built on immigration, particularly as we're going forward. And if we look at the tax cuts, if we look at climate and all the, all these other um, policy issues, they all come from or are related heavily to population. So that'll be a big issue for the for the government to tackle. Okay, thanks for that, and we'll come back to immigration issues a little bit later on this morning. Paul, over to you. Well, I'm with Warwick. I think that the energy sector and and emissions policy this is really a big test for the the returned government. Uh, it's a very interesting time. We have a lot of technological opportunities at the moment. The government is developing a national strategy for hydrogen. Hydrogen, as we speak, the, the work on that started before the election. Good to there's, hear that. There's a big potential there. Um, and the interesting thing will be the electricity sector and an emissions policy for it because our coal-fired power stations are old. Some will be closing over coming years. Um, but how do we make sure there's enough investment in that system? Will they return to the National Energy Guarantee, the NEG, one of those policies Warwick perhaps touched on just just then when mentioning how many we've had? Um, or will they will they go back to, to developing a system that economists would uh, be be happier with? One of the things I'm hearing is about policy certainty and hopefully for the coalition, for Australians, that we'll get a government that will deliver some sort of certainty, either energy, climate change or whatever. But one thing is certain, uh, death and taxes and <laughs> and uh, tax cuts, I suppose, given the, the outcome in terms of uh, the election. Uh, and so the coalition has promised uh, a very large uh, amount in terms of going for in the forward estimates, $158 billion of income tax cuts over the coming uh, decade. And as a first step, and indeed that's a priority of Prime Minister Morrison, he's already made that clear since the election result, they'll double the low and middle income tax offset and raise the threshold for the 19% tax rate to $45,000. So just to get this kicked off for us, Warwick, uh, what's your opinion on that promise from the coalition? And what do you think are the main challenges in terms of not only uh, getting it through the parliament, but in terms of implementation and delivering the good outcomes that... uh, uh, has been promised by uh, by the Prime Minister. So I'll leave the politics to others, but I think the big risk here is the revenue stream that's going to have to be forthcoming to support the tax cuts. Um, very optimistic projections in the budget in terms of commodity prices, global growth and wage growth in Australia. If that's not forthcoming, then you're not going to have the capacity to cut taxes without increasing the budget deficit. And I doubt that Mor- the Morrison government will want to have a larger budget deficit. So the question is, how do you balance the uncertainty in the revenue stream with the certainty of the tax cuts. And that's always been a dilemma, whether it's been in previous government fiscal projections or in previous government's promises about climate policy. You don't assume you know the future when you make these promises. And that's the biggest mistake that both sides of politics always make. There's also a very uh, ambitious uh, assumption in the budget numbers about expenditure restraint. I mean, over the last six years of the government, they've uh, kept expenditure at about 2.5% rate of growth, I should say, annual, and now they're assuming half that. And that, I just don't think they'll achieve that. But uh, there was a statement two days before the election that they were 
continue with the efficiency dividend at 2%. There's talks about cuts in the public service. Would that be enough to keep the expenditure growth uh, in line in terms of what the coalition is promising? I don't think so. And I think as you move into the 2020s, the big unfunded expenditure items, particularly infrastructure and uh, and defence, are going to be very big challenges through the, the 2020s. I think if you look at the recent book by uh, Mike Keating, ex-Secretary of Finance, talking about a three percentage point increase of GDP, uh, tax relative to GDP over the 2020s just to fund the commitments that were known before the election. So it's a big number. Can I just add, though, that it's also the upside. We can't, we can't rule out the possibility that, in fact, revenues will be greater. And so there is always a possibility of some transformational impact in the global economy from all the new technologies that are coming online. And so, I mean, I think the problem is, is both directions. It's both higher, high risk, but on the downside is probably greater than the upside. But there is upside risk here. And so you still need to think forward about what do you do if, in fact, the world is different than what we expect. Can I just ask on this debate, and this may sound wildly idealistic, is this, is all, we, is this all we're going to hear from the government in the next three years on tax? Anything else to say on tax? Tax reform, other forms of taxes, GST, um, all the good work was done in the Henry Review. We, we all, all remember this. We all live in hope. We all live in hope, but I'd have to ask the question, what reform, do you think? But, you know. Well, I think, I mean, again, you think about what's happened. We've had a miracle, right? No one, like, <laughs> I thought, I thought there's a chance, but, but a lot of people didn't think the government would be returned. The fact that they have has put the Prime Minister in a very powerful position in the short term. If he wants to be regarded as the greatest leader of the Liberal government ever, he wants to leave behind some fairly large policy reforms. And I think tax is one. I think climate change is another. Energy is another. So the question is, do you do you hold on for another three years and then get defeated the next election? Or do you actually make it clear in the short period you have that window of opportunity that you're willing to do the best thing for the country and get the payoff at the next election? And my view is that, that that's the debate that's, that's need to be had. I think that's right. There's a bit of a blank slate here um, in terms of of economic reform ideas and 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 energy policy, and there's a, just such a, a great potential. And over the next three years, I think we should be expecting a few new ideas to be popping up. Just like to move on now, if we might, to education. Uh, the coalition pledged 4.6 billion for Catholic and independent schools, a two-year freeze on growth of funding for Commonwealth-supported places, and a 525 million, I guess, skills package to boost apprenticeships in areas with skills shortages. Lisa, I think we'll start with you. How did that grab you? I think what um, we're seeing in Australia is is, um, I'm very much of the opinion that we're at a bit of a watershed moment, particularly with regard to the the demographic transition that we're we're undergoing in in terms of an ageing population. I think in the grand scheme of things, we require... Uh, the R word, uh, reform in, in the full education suite. And I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think there are so many issues around, uh, public versus, uh, private school funding. We, we, uh, in terms of the equality and in terms of the difference the differential outcomes that we're seeing in, in student uh, learning and the like. There's so much more that needs to be done to address that. And I, I fear that um, 
you know, we've talked about uh, the, the government wanting to to make a name for themselves and set themselves up for the next election. My concern is that short termism will will feature quite largely, and in that they they will be looking for quick gains, um, so that uh, the scoreboard at the end of this term is quite a significant one. But in doing so, the the R word doesn't really get get dealt with. The reform doesn't occur. Um, when it comes to education, we need to consider a life course approach from the cradle to the grave. No, you know, certainty in deaths and taxes. There's certainty in so many other things in between, and that needs to be addressed, um, particularly with regard to the the starting point that we 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 arrive at in terms of from the cradle, the inequality that that then grows as education and health disparities compound. We're not addressing the core issues. We're 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 filt- we're we're dealing and tinkering around the edges, and I think part of that is for quick gains. Well, I don't think there has been a comprehensive assessment of the needs of the education system as a whole. That's the reform question you mentioned. Uh, they're all ad hoc changes that have been promised, and they were promised by both sides. And more money doesn't solve the problems of some of the weaknesses in the system. When I just look at universities, for example, most universities in this country today are stealing from their education budgets to fund research. Now, if you really want to you know, elevate university education and do it properly, there's a big questions there to be addressed. In the schools area, well, there has been a focus, of course, on Gonski and that in dealing with disability. But what worried me about that was there was nothing forward-looking about that. It was sort of fixing and an, a failing of funding in the past. Mm. But if you take a medium to longer-term view of where schools will be and what education should be like with rapid advances of technology and so on, big, big challenges. And, of course, then you've got the vocational side, which got a lot of talk about in both sides, but I didn't see anything specific apart from a few more apprenticeships or a few more TAFE spaces. Sounds like a lot of work in progress when it comes to education, but I suppose one of the other big issues for work in progress, and we've been working on it for many years now in Australia, going back and forth, of course, it's climate change. And this was supposed to be the climate change election, and perhaps it was in a number of ways. So Scott Morrison and the coalition have uh, supporting a $2 billion climate solutions fund, which is more of the same in terms of what they were doing previously to reduce emissions. And of course, uh, one of the big promises was the expansion of the Snowy Hydro Scheme, the, the big battery in our back door. On the other hand, Morrison, Prime Minister Morrison, has also committed to a coal upgrade project in New South Wales. Uh, does that make sense? I'm not sure, but uh, over to you, Paul. And uh, we've got an audience question from Mongambi Paul on our Facebook group. And the question is, how does Australia address climate policies when the voters through progressive policies under the bus? Well, uh, not all voters, of course, um, through progressive policies under the bus. And, and I do think we need to step back and rem- remember that we're only speaking about one or two percentage points in difference. If it had been the other way around, our takes today would have been very different. Um, and of course, Ali Stegall was elected on a climate uh, platform and, and other results one could refer to as well. Mm. But the point really does go to the big challenge, and that is we're a big country. We have a lot of coal. We have natural gas as well. A lot of jobs on the line and really I think a positive narrative is needed about the potential transition opportunities and use a better word than transition, the potential opportunities in these great new sectors in solar power, in wind farms, in hydrogen production, in electric vehicles and so on. Yeah, but if you're a coal miner in Queensland and someone knocks on your door and says, well, there's great transition coming, there's going to be a lot of wind turbines in South Australia, aren't they going to just say, well, hang on, what about me? 
Well, I mean, it's a, it's a big challenge, but of course, Queensland is a fantastic state with lots of resources that are relevant uh, in the future zero carbon world as well. Um, closely located to Asia, great great spot to send off hydrogen from, for example, generated using solar and wind. Uh, so Queensland does have a lot of opportunities in the long run, but it, it is a challenge getting from A to B, definitely. So if I could just chip in here, because I think that the key problem here is that neither party had a set of policies which were coherent. Mm. People were talking about targets. The targets don't actually matter in terms of the costs. You could have a, a small target with very inefficient policies that's very costly, and you can have a deep cuts target which has very efficient policies, which is cheaper. So the whole focus on symbolic targets is not where the answer is. The question should be, what are the policies we're going to implement? And frankly, the Labor Party didn't say what the policies would be and said, it, you, no, no, no need to calculate the cost because the benefits are going to outweigh the cost. Well, a coal miner who hears that says, well, there are costs and I'm going to bear them. So I think you needed to know exactly the policies. The government's policies as they stand will be enough by our modelling to hit a 28% target. But if the world moves to a much deeper cuts world, the framework is incapable of going for the deeper cuts. And so I think you need to design the framework to anticipate that we will be going deeper than we're currently thinking. And therefore, we want to be able to adjust very, very easily into that new world instead of having to have a complete readjustment of all your policies. That was the biggest problem in this debate. What are the policies for the deep cuts world? Yeah, so it's interesting that you're saying that the policies are going to deliver the 28% uh, reduction in, uh, in emissions by, uh, by 2030. But, but here's a follow-up question and perhaps uh, for one of the other people around the table. So Anna Greta Hunter asks, how can we advance the policy agenda to tackle climate change. So that adds on to what Warwick was talking about. Over to you, Liz. So I think um, the, the language of a target for many people uh, when it comes to, to the environment, I think they see a target means a loss of, of either industry or, or loss or cuts somewhere else that, that affects individual people. And I think uh, we definitely the, the narrative around that needs to change. Uh, without a doubt, uh, the renewal um, energy workforce is growing and it's growing quite, quite substantially. Um, and I think we need to move from this idea of targets. Don't get me wrong, targets are important. But in terms of how it's sold to the electorate, it needs to be sold more on the idea that it will cost us more not to act. And I'm talking about the fundamental things such as the as as we're exposed to prolonged extreme weather events and our nighttime temperatures do not dip so that we have some kind of respite, we will see human lives lost at a greater rate. And I think we can't, that idea of a target is so difficult for people at an individual level to see how that plays out in their lives. We will see real lives lost, not just our animals, not just the koalas, personal uh, loved ones that will die as a consequence of these increased extreme weather events. What's worse, if we were to map the consequences of these extreme weather events and the human cost of life, where does it all occur? It occurs in the lower socioeconomic areas. Let's take Sydney, for example, which aren't necessarily living, uh, these communities aren't living in, in housing that is, is going to help weather the storms, so to speak. And they're not going to be able to retrofit, um, uh, their, their housing. So we have to start communicating in this way. The cost 
is is more if we don't act. Yeah, so this is feeds into this narrative of a climate emergency. The mm. UK Parliament, he and the ACT, they they passed a, a similar sort of uh, uh, move, movement in the context of pressing the button as a climate emergency. But but this is an important issue about the poor, the rich, the who who pays, I suppose. But over to over to you, John. We've got a question from our Facebook group member, Annalise Taylor. And this is this equity issue, and I'm happy for others to step in as well. The question from Annalise is the following. How do you address intergenerational inequality, not just the present generation, without it being seen as a zero-sum game when it comes to climate change? Well, to the extent that uh, you don't deal with the climate challenge in this generation, you are stealing from future generations quite significantly. The magnitude of the task you're kicking down the road gets bigger and more difficult in my view. Um, as far as the government's policy agenda goes in terms of the climate area, they could effectively scrap the lot and start again, in my view, because it was a just, let's get bits and pieces, put them together, a lot of inconsistencies in there, no medium-term uh, commitment really to a proper transition, no focus on not only dealing with, a, say, a transition from coal to other alternatives and the, you know, the job consequences, the community consequences of that, but no thinking about the new industries and the new potential, the enormous potential. And the bottom line is today renewables are cheaper. Baseload renewables are cheaper. Um, you know, the, the snowy hydro is a very expensive uh, figment of somebody's imagination. You probably ought to move from that um, because it's never going to be commercially viable. That's why they won't release the feasibility study. But there are alternatives and we have technology in this country for thermal storage that's flexible along the grid, much cheaper in terms of construction costs, much cheaper in terms of throughput costs. Those things are there. And of course, in the transport sector, I can't believe that we just you know, jettison the idea of a transition to electric vehicles because it's going to happen. It's going to happen much faster than people imagine. And um, you know, we always think these things can't happen that fast, but I remember the mobile phone. I remember the SLR <laughs> camera. You know, these things happen very quickly, yeah. uh, much quicker than uh, than people imagined. And I think that's going to happen. And as soon as you get global auto manufacturers, which are now doing them I in the recent European car show, they actually released all the electric vehicles they're bringing forward. And their charging times are like eight minutes not uh, five days, as Alan Jones would have you believe. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot happening already and ex pace is accelerating. And so I think Morrison should reset that. Yeah, so this is, this is the change what's currently on the table. But well, I think that you've got to be careful with the way you approach this debate. The cost yes. of not taking action doesn't work in Australia because if Australia disappears, the climate problem doesn't go away. So you can't, you can't make the argument that Australia taking action is going to fix the barrier reef and is going to save lives. It won't. What Australia needs to do is create a framework which is part of a global cooperative package where everybody gets in and does it. And Australia, if it's designed a policy package that other countries adopt, which is low cost, deep cuts, then we'll achieve something. But the argument that you save lives in Sydney doesn't fly because you won't. But, but I, I disagree. I, I think that if we per, we need to personalise the story because what happens is we're, we've got and we've already got this narrative running at the moment is that what we're doing is a, a you know a, a drop in the pond compared to the the global uh, the the global um, uh, issue. But again, I, as I said, I think we need to to pare this back and move it back to to the individual level so that people can understand um, that that what we do here 
actually has impact on us here. Except and I think that will then destroy the argument here because people can demonstrably point out that Australia's emissions are too small and that's what the right wing argue. So I think you don't engage them in that argument because you can't win it. What you do is you say there's a bigger game we're playing here and there are benefits, as John says, there are big benefits in taking action. It's not to save lives, it's to actually get the economic benefits to outweigh the economic costs and then win the argument in a rational way. I don't think the emotive argument actually swings the people who are going to lose their jobs. The point is that you can generate income by the transition, and I think that's the argument you want to make. I, I agree with you. It's important morally, but from an economic point of view and a political point of view, it's just not going to win the argument in Australia. It will in China and the US because they're big enough, but Australia's too small to have, a, a, to have any impact on the climate. It's great that we've got this debate, and we have that debate on Saturday, of course, with the election results. And uh, I think we'll uh, move on to, to 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 the next set of issues. Yes, um, I'm coming back to immigration, Liz, and looking mm. at you. To first off, um, just to remind, the coalition wants to continue with its current border protection regime. No surprises there, I mm. would have thought, and continues to oppose the new Medivac policy over concerns that it would weaken Australia's border security. Grateful your views on that and how you see it going ahead in future. I think whenever we we talk about um, immigration, we need to take a, a wider look at the whole suite of issues here. And I think the Medivac um, uh, issue is only one small part of that. Um, if we, so, say for hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Example, I think the the biggest narrative going into the the election, and I think will also follow um, post um, uh, post appointment, is that um, an immigration cut overall, and and that's part of that that uh, line of of a hard line. Um, we're going to bus congestion. We're going to build infrastructure. We're going to put people into regional areas and the like. And the medivac is only one part of that. Um, but it's a big part of that in terms of the idea that Australia is, needs to be secure and, and people don't risk their lives or, or others don't put, uh, others at risk in, in the promise of something that can't be delivered. But in terms of immigration, what the government is going to struggle with is this idea that they've put forward very convincingly is that immigration needs to be capped. Um, at a lower uh, level than it, it previously has been. That cut is actually quite meaningless and, and it isn't a real substantive change in the grand scheme of things. But at the same time, in the budget uh, forward estimates, when it came to the the, the elements of immigration, uh, net overseas immigration intake, it's much higher than, than, uh, than expected moving forward. It's actually an increase over the next 10 years. Those things don't align. And I, I think that that's, it, it's going to lead to issues around immigration, Australia's borders, Australia's security. It's going to fester and it's going to be – I'm concerned it's going to, to deliver really poor results for everybody. Okay. Just quickly around the table then. Any other views on that? 
I mean, it's a big process. We start with our immigrants overseas, the whole refugee issue. What are we doing coordinating with other countries to cope with that in the future? Getting them on board, border protection, resettlement, citizenship, the whole processing of immigration is a big issue. John. I think in terms of refugees, they've got to focus on a resettlement strategy as a matter of urgency. And yep. If they have to eat a bit of crow going, putting some of them in New Zealand, they'll need to do that. The American solution is not going to be a sustainable long-term solution. Um, and I think that, um, you know, that's always been the inadequacy of the refugee strategies, not having that third leg, the refugee resettlement process. In terms of immigration and congestion and so on, I mean, when I sit on the M5 of a morning, I don't think it's impacted very much by the number of refugees that came <laughs> across the border. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of misrepresentation in that mm. argument so far. I think we do need an objective look as to the level of immigration that's appropriate. Obviously, the nation's been built on it. There are always social and economic consequences of cutting it or increasing it, but you need to have that informed um, evidence-based debate, let's say, rather than just the political arguments that have been run. What about the New Zealand solution? Bob, I just wanted to add that. Yes, the New Zealand solution. Because that was off the table before uh, in terms of the coalition. Yeah, and I think Bill Shorten tentatively said that if if elected, they would pick up, which is having our people on Manus and Nauru resettled in New Zealand. And accepting there might be some risk that some of those people might then seek to come to Australia for permanent residence. Well, you ignore and so on. the number of people who arrive by plane, which is about ten times the number who've arrived by boat. Absolutely, and we just end up overstaying their visas. You know, mm. so it's been a nonsense argument for years. That's Paul, right. Paul and Warwick, anything to add <clears> to this? Just sticking to a technology theme, when it comes to road congestion, I mean, we have good ideas for solving this type yes. of problem: uh, the use of economic pricing and satellite-based. Uh, Absolutely. Um, devices. I mean, th- th- this type of system is being used overseas. We so have a great congestion opportunity. charges and this con- sort of thing. Congestion pricing, yeah. that's right. And this is the type of reform. Uh, it does not need to make people poorer. Mm. It, it's, it raises some revenue, that's right. We can use the revenue in the best ways possible. That could be for improving public transport. It could be for providing uh, direct transfers. It could be for cutting other taxes. Um, this type of approach can more directly address some of these key issues. Worry. anything to add to this? Uh, Just to make the point that more immigration isn't necessarily good for the economy because what what matters is per per capita quality of life. And so I think you can't just have an immigration discussion without looking at the entire gamut of policies that have to go with it. And so I think it's like almost a meaningless conversation without understanding what are we trying to achieve, what's our goals, and what do we actually care about? It's per capita welfare of Australians, not the number of Australians. And the fortunate thing is we have that research available. And uh, the 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 optimal range, according to Peter McDonald and colleagues, sits between 160,000 uh, to 220,000 uh, permanent migra- migrants each year, um, and that um, is in accordance with, with with what you've just said. That that's definitely um, an important factor. But the other thing too, when it comes to congestion, if we were to cut immigration today, and we say that's it, we call it no more um, as of tomorrow. We would still grow as a population. So in terms of um, congestion, if you're sitting in traffic, you are traffic, you are part of the problem. We need to stop blaming the other, which is so visible now, of course, as a result of the change in, in migrant intake. Um, and, and as I said, it's, I would, I would encourage the government to take steps, um, to, to changing that discourse, to change that conversation and moving it, and move it away from, uh, from what it's been quite harmful across the, the whole spectrum of the political debate. 
Good. So industrial relations, it was uh, figured uh, very, very highly in previous elections, but not this election. But I suppose there's a lot of issues around industrial relations, and one of them is sort of the Uber economy, the gig economy. And so there's a couple of items here in terms of where the coalition uh, promised. So the first thing, it uh, pledged to create a right for casual workers to request permanent full-time or part-time work. And the second issue that was uh, headlined from themselves was to give the federal court power to deregister unions or de disqualify officials for repeated serious breaches of the law. So over to you, John. Uh, where do you stand on these, uh, these, these promises and pledges, and where is that going to take us in terms of industrial relations in Australia in the next three years? I think having had a miracle win, there's an enormous sigh of relief in the business community that the Labor agenda, the Sally McManus agenda, wasn't going to be pursued and take us back to the 1950s. And in that sense, you'll only see marginal change, I think, from the government. And some of the areas you've just mentioned are, are possible. But um, I don't think they'll go into that area very quickly or with much substance. Um, and this whole issue about casualization of the workforce and whether you know a casual shouldn't have the full benefits of a full-time employee, there are reasons why they were appointed casual in the first place on both sides. So I think that debate will just fade myself. Um, and I don't think you'll see too much in terms of industrial relations. I mean, we were getting enormous benefits from a, a transition to more enterprise focus and wage determination. And um, that started really under Hawke and Keating and carried through. It should be continued. Um, I think to go back to some more collective bargaining uh, across uh, areas uh, you know, would, be a, would be a big minus. So I, I don't think you'll see much change. What did you think, Paul? I'd agree with that. In particular, if you look back at the 2004 election when John Howard beat Mark Latham and then that final term of the Howard government, they went for work choices and that in the end backfired. So I would tend to agree with John that they would they would go for a, a more quiet strategy on the industrial relations front. How about the concern that was expressed about wages being flat, decreasing inequality of the wage across there, sort of weak signs in the economy? Well, that all comes down to productivity. productivity yeah. I mean, you cannot get a wage increase. You can promise it, but it won't be forthcoming unless you get higher productivity. If you implement it, you'll end up with unemployment. And I think that was the mistake in the labor platform. Uh, how do you get higher productivity? You have economic reform. How do you get economic reform? You make hard choices. You reform the tax system. You in, in reform people's incentives. You improve infrastructure. There's a whole range of policies which are needed to 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 solve this problem. Uh, in terms of wage distribution, I think Australia is not the US. And I think the other problem was that the Labor Party was pushing the agenda that was consistent with US data in terms of income distribution, but wasn't consistent with Australian data. It was just not true what they were saying, particularly after the tax and transfer system was taken into account. So I think this this division by by trying to win an election by dividing society either through generational divisions or um, worker divisions is a very, very dangerous road to go down. And I'm glad that that road now has a dead end. One thing that Morrison could do is adopt, say, a 10-year objective of, say, doubling our national productivity and then embarking on the reform agenda across so many areas to actually achieve that, try and refocus the debate on the significance of productivity and the reform that's required to get there rather than pretend you can go to the Fair, Fair Work Commission and, 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 in effect, regulate or legislate an increase in wages. It's not going to happen. Yeah, and it'll have the if you manage to do it, it'll have the consequences, as Warwick said, increase unemployment. Well, I, I mean, 
for my my experience, there's been a lot of promises on productivity, a lot of promises on reform that never actually have been delivered. So, so let's let's see uh, if uh, Scott Morrison and his team can deliver in the next three years in terms of productivity growth increases. Okay, Just on, gonna... on this issue of of the the there's a dead end to to intergenerational conflict. I don't think that I don't think that the conversation's over because we see on climate, we see on matters of education and the like. The, the the conversation around the you know the language of intergenerational theft or um, and definitely you're right we don't we don't have the same issue as the US but we do have uh, intergenerational issues with regard to wealth and 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 that's something I think that you know think about home ownership and um, buying your first home this is really a big issue for many young people um, and I don't think there's a dead end to it I think it's going to simmer. Um, but you're right. I think the the harmful conversations we're having, we can't have that that um, boomers versus the rest of the world. Um, but we do need to address it because it will simmer. And it, it has to be cooperation, growing. not conflict. Yeah. If yeah, you get yeah, a cooperative yeah. arrangement, and there are ways of doing this, I think that's a much more positive way of yeah. doing it. I agree, there's a problem, but yeah. you don't fix it by conflict. Yeah. Okay, we're going to shift it just slightly and now move to water. Uh, and this is where Quentin and I ask each other questions, and you guys please come in after us. <laughs> <laughs> Water has been a major issue in Australian politics, of course, not lastly because we've seen the last year or so the fish kills in the Murray-Darling Basin. In response, the Coalition wants to continue with the Murray-Darling Basin plan, run a basin-wide study to better understand the conditions in irrigation communities, and establish a national water grid with a focus on building new dams. How does that sound to you, Quentin? Is that going to be enough to deal with the issues? Uh, sadly not. I, I wish business as usual would deliver for Australia when it comes to water, but I, it, it won't, unfortunately. Uh, so when you build a dam, you store water, but you don't create water. Water, of course, is limited by the hydrological cycle. Most of Australia is arid and semi-arid, so building dams is not going to contribute much, especially when you have high rates of evaporation. That's not to say I'm against dams. Some dams in some locations may well make sense. They'll need to go through a proper cost-benefit analysis. But I think the coalition, certainly from the, the, its previous term, was very keen on spending a lot of uh, subsidies and giving grants for dams and water infrastructure without looking at the bottom line. What was the payoff for the, for the public purse? What was the rate of return on investment from, from the public expenditures? And I think it's worth keeping in mind because we had the discussion on taxes. Is of course the money doesn't come from 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 the clouds. Uh, money comes from taxes, and it means that uh, if you start spending money on building dams, it means you do less expenditures on something else. And furthermore, you have to ca- take it out of taxes, and taxes cost. Taxes have an impact on on productivity. It has an impact on a whole range of different things. So we have to make sure we spend wisely. So that's the first thing I would say. And then, of course, there's a whole range of issues around the integrity issues and the, the, the hashtag Watergate. Um, we don't know where those are, are going to land up. And, and, of course, there's the environmental issues. We had the big uh, Menindee Lakes uh, and Darling River fish kills in January and December of last year. Those, uh, those aren't going to go away. Building more dams isn't going to fix that problem. So 
I think we have to look at uh, demand-based solutions. We have to look at a range of issues about water reallocation, and we have to spend our money wisely. And there are communities hurting, so spend it on the communities, don't spend it on building pipes perhaps. So, I mean, I think there's a range of things that are available to us and even basic water data, even basic water data we don't have available for us in the, in the, in the Murray-Darling Basin. And that's in- incredibly uh, shocking to me. Uh, so unless you've got the data to know what's going on, you can't even make decisions about what you should be doing in the context. Can, of can I ask you, do you think the situation is that bad that we need a royal commission into this thing? Well, we had a Royal Commission from South Australia. The problem with that Royal Commission was that uh, the coalition government uh, refused to have its public servants appear before it. There was a court case where I went to the High Court and eventually it wasn't decided on because of uh, time limits. So there are a lot of questions that were left unanswered. And so unless there's a judicial inquiry where there's coercive, coercive powers where people are actually obliged to answer those questions under oath and if they give false testimony, then they perjured themselves. Then I think a lot of the a lot of the key questions out there in terms of what's happened in the last few years will not be answered. And uh, I certainly don't expect there to be a royal commission uh, on the Murray-Darling, on the water uh, in the next three years. Colleagues, anything to offer? Uh, look, I think water is a very big issue going forward. I mean, it's you don't want to underestimate how significant it's going to become. As an economist, I got annoyed years ago that uh, – number of industries that are big water users like cotton and rice would never have been developed in this country if we'd actually charged the market price for their access to water. And we're living with that legacy. And of course, there's a part of the government, the National Party, that will go to the the walls defending their rights, which uh, doesn't give you a a really good start in looking at the the proper access and the proper pricing of access to water. Uh, But, um, you know, there are also going to be a plethora, I think, of proposals now to bring water down from northern Australia in some sort of pipeline or whatever, Uh, you know, and um, they have never stacked up as far as I can see in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Uh, uh, But, um, you know, the National Party stands for more dams, they stand for more pipelines, you know, that's a big constraint in this government as to what they will realistically do about water. Maybe a judicial inquiry, but... They're going to resist that too, probably. The entire system needs to be reviewed uh, in terms of not just um, our river systems, but storage and 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 the the integrity of of the types of storage where they are and things like that. Um, if we think about the population side of things, um, it's, I mean, it's without water um, and uh, you know. A very uh, smart person once said to me that uh, World War Three will be fought over water. Whether that remains to be true, um, who knows? But it's something that um, the entire um, system and its integrity needs to be needs to be understood um, uh, for all Australians. So let's look a little bit further forward. Uh, which we have done, I suppose, for the next three years. And our Facebook pod group member, Mitzi Bolton, asked this question for the whole group, please. What are your thoughts on how to progress complex policy issues when the Australian population has just rejected a party that tried to do so? Liz, to you first. Um it's an issue. It's a big issue, and we we see this in research as well. Is is the idea of um, tackling complex issues and complicated issues, and um, 
and if we t- if we borrow from uh, the literature, in, in particularly um, with regard to how we tackle complex and complicated health issues, well, we break them down. We break them down into manageable chunks. Um, and I think that um, the other th- the other thing that's come out quite um, overtly in in this election is that um, appealing uh, to all of Australians. Uh, with one voice and one slogan and one line is just not realistic. Um, it, it's odd that we've we've come this far and and realised it, but we need to understand the population, what what the population needs are, how they are going to be met, and break the the complex and and the complicated issues down, and how they're interrelated, and have a conversation that meets the needs of all people. That's beyond three three word slogans that we assume that everyone is going to to um, understand or even appeal to them. And of course, Scott Morrison and his. Uh uh, uh, speech on Saturday night said he would govern for all Australians. So uh, well, let's, let's see. But we're see. not all the same. Yeah. <laughs> we're not all the same. And the 12 million or so voters, uh, they have voted in different ways. So please, uh, anyone else around the, around the, around the table, so John? I think, oh, Mark? I think we're... I think we have a danger here of, of learning the wrong, the wrong lesson from this. Mm. It wasn't that it was too complicated. It was that the people rejected policies that had been very clearly explained. They did not want to go down the route that the Labor Party wanted to take the country. A third of the population voted for it. Two-thirds of the population didn't. So I think it was not the fact that the policies were described and laid out. It was the fact that people didn't agree with the strategy. Mm. And if we learn that, then we, 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 we have to come up with a set of policies. And I agree with your comments that it has to be something that encompasses a majority of Australians and they have to understand the implications for themselves as well as the implications for the national good. And there's two very different aspects there Mm. that people understand. Most people I talk to from all walks of life understand that there's a national interest and there's a self-interest and you have to manage that relationship between the two. Can you think, looking back to Bob Hawke, who's just been in the news, of course, recently, um, why was that period of reform so successful? Is that doing the sort of thing you're talking about, Warren? Well, John, uh, John knows this much better than me, but from my point of view, it was the fact that the policies which the Hawke-Keating government were advocating were supported by the opposition. Mm. So you had a somewhat of a consensus across that's the political right. spectrum on the key issues. And that's where I think we should head from for here. 80% of the things we care about, both major parties probably agree with. So let's address the 80% that they agree with, put in place good policy frameworks to deal with that, and then argue at the margin on the other 20%. Uh, while we're doing this fractured policy debate where you change your position every uh, every electoral cycle to do, argue for the opposite, just to be uh, the opponent of the government in, in, in pace, mm-hmm. that just doesn't help the national interest. So I think there has to be a change. And I think Bob Hawke was successful for the very reason that he understood what Australians cared about. And he was lucky that the, the consensus in the other side of politics was was to an extent supporting his views. Australians Bill. liked <clears throat> Hawke. Australians liked Hawke or at least tolerated Hawke. Uh, Bill Shorten's a totally different story. There's not a lot of love um, and and I, I, would, I would suggest that plays a lot um, here as well. So it's not just the, the messages. No, it's the, the messages. Uh, yeah, that's exactly and right. Again, as, as we pointed out or we discussed uh, briefly the, the, the presidential nature of the, the election, and the Scott Morrison vis-a-vis Bill Shorten very mm. much was the focus here. Well, Morrison's John. got a unique opportunity, I think, to step beyond the short-term day-to-day sort of point scoring and blame shifting we call politics and actually set a medium-term agenda in the national interest and then try and take the community 
along with that. You're going to have to explain the detail of that sort of transition across a lot of policy areas. They're going to have to sign off on it to be successful. Uh, identify the policy steps in sort of bite-sized chunks moving forward uh, and uh, challenge the opposition constantly to give at least the bigger issues bipartisan support. Okay, as you said, Warwick, argue about the 20%, but don't worry about the 80%. Just get on and do it. And Morrison can do that. I mean, he can provide that leadership. It means he's going to have to do that every day, day in, day out, argue the case at all levels of the community. But in fact, that's what he has a chance to do. And we see whether we don't know. I mean, we tried that with Malcolm, for example, and uh, he came in with a great flourish, promising to do all of that. And all the options went on the table, and then they all came off the table, and in the end, he did very little. I think Morrison's probably learnt something from that and hopefully that will provide a, a, a platform for him to move forward. Paul, last word for you on that question. Well, just briefly, I think that com- the election result does uh, to some extent show that communication is vital. The Prime Minister is a good communicator. He speaks very clearly. He gets his messages across. And if we look overseas, uh, leaders like Jacinda Ardern and Donald Trump are very good communicators in their different ways as well. Um, so I, I guess the holy grail is good communication and designing policies that uh, don't just sound good when you communicate them, but actually have substance to them and that benefit people widely so that your your slogans, if you do have them, can actually stand on strong feet as well. Thank you all for those great contributions. And listeners, don't forget to stick around for part three of our podcast, where we'll go over some of your questions, comments and suggestions for future podcasts. Hi, I'm Julia Brown. I'm Ian Pollock. And I'm Simon Theobald. Some of your familiar strangers from the Familiar Strange podcast. The Familiar Strange is a podcast about doing anthropology. That is, about listening, looking, trying out, and being with. In pursuit of uncommon knowledge about humans and culture. The show alternates between in-depth conversations with experts and senior academics about the ways they think, write, do research, and navigate the academic world. And panel discussions, where emerging anthropologists, like ourselves, take a look at our worlds using what we've learned as students of anthropology. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And find our blog at thefamiliarstrange.com. Is that it? That's it. Excellent. Check us out and keep talking strange. Welcome back. So thank you, Liz, John, Paul, and Warwick for this fantastic discussion. What did you think about it, Bob? I thought it was a fascinating discussion, partly because there was quite a degree of optimism there, which is a bit contrary to what I think a lot of people are feeling since the election results. The real question is whether the government and indeed has has the will and the capacity to evolve policy questions and then take them out into the broader electorate and get some wider and hopefully bipartisan support to that just underlines the fact that while policy is hard, actually getting buy-in and implementing policy successfully is a big task. What do you think, Quentin? Do we have reason to be optimistic? Well, let's be hopeful. Let me put it that way. So the last six years were not successful, in my view, in terms of policy reform and moving the agenda forward for Australia. So hopefully the next three years will be. And certainly Scott Morrison's got the mandate. He's certainly the the messiah from the shire, as they as the Australian <laughs> did in its headline. So he's got the mandate. Uh, he's got the party on side. So let's see whether he'll deliver for all Australians. I, I, I wish him well. So listeners, you heard what we thought about the discussion, but we want to know what you thought about it. Please keep sending us your comments and suggestions. We really love hearing from you. 
because each week we get the chance to go over some of your fantastic comments that you've given us over the past week. And we would like to start with a piece by Gemma Carey, which is Ensuring Better Insurance for Australians. In this piece, Gemma writes that though some of its most pressing issues remain unsolved, the National Disability Insurance Scheme has so far gone largely unmentioned in Australia's election campaign. We had a comment by Marion Policy Forum who writes, The NDIA refuses to provide participants with any information on how their plan was determined. One person is told that they should use bike lights instead of providing them with wheelchair lights, yet others get wheelchair lights. What do you think about that, Quentin? Look, I, I think the the whole policy behind that and the initiative is, was great for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. It's just unfortunately, uh, hopefully they're just teething issues, but there's a whole series of stories that are out there of people who haven't uh, had their plans approved. They've been waiting long periods of time. Some people are very happy with it and some people are very unhappy. So, And keep in mind, these are the most uh, disadvantaged, the most vulnerable Australians. So I think we need to focus on making sure it does work for all of them, not just for the some who have their plans that uh, that work for them. Because uh, I think it's critically important. These are the, the, the worst off in Australia and we've got to look after them. Bob, do you agree that these might just be teething issues or is no, there something deeper? I absolutely deeper? agree with uh, Quentin. I spent early in my life a bit of time on the board of Carers ACT and we did have a lot to do with the way the NDI was introduced here into Canberra. And the teething problems were really quite immense. And the initial take-up was really left quite a few people out. Uh, sadly, quite a degree of confusion about how new plans were to be put together, what were the elements of those plans, what was the degree of self-selection by the disabled person and how the funding would be taken forward and what degree of freedom and flexibility did people have. So uh, there's quite a lot of work to do in this space yet. And of course, it's going to become, has become, one of the big funding demands on our future revenue stream. No problem with doing that. It's just that it's got to be really well spent for this seriously disadvantaged group. We've got another comment here this time on a podcast which also discusses a topic that we would say is a work in progress. It's Can Australia Spark an Energy Change with Kenneth Baldwin, Carly Catchpole and Mark Kenny. In this episode, our panel discusses Australia's energy policies in light of the not any more upcoming federal election, but the federal election that has now happened, and as well uh, as well as the government's role in ensuring a smooth and transition to renewables. We had a comment by Liam Hughes on our podcast group, and he wrote, great episode. I like that. It was really optimistic. I think that it's really easy to be just negative and worried about climate change. And I think it's great that we can have a discussion that talks about the amazing stuff we are currently doing and the opportunities we have to deal with in a positive way. What do you think about that, Bob? Look, um, I share some of that optimism. I didn't actually catch up with that panel discussion myself, but just hearing people talk on it and again, Paul, this morning, the way technology is changing, the opportunities out there, there is a positive story to be told to Australians about how we transition how we do get renewable energy up into the system, how we make it work, how we get the grid working with the new energy sources. And behind that, there lies a whole new industrial base that could be to Australia's very significant advantage. Ross Garner was talking on this just a week or so ago. And really, the opportunities out there are quite magnificent if we are able to have the courage and the wit to get them together and go for them. So it's been a rocky road the last 10 years or so in our climate change and energy policies. 
to be frank, this government uh, didn't have any to take to the electorate in any serious way and now we have to sort of move on and the world is not going to indulge us here. The world's just going to keep moving right on past us. So we need to pay a bit of catch up as well. A rocky road ahead indeed as well. What do you think about that? Oh, I fully concur with with Bob and the panellists at that uh, part episode that uh, we don't have an energy policy, at least we didn't uh, go into the election campaign. So this is certainly on the to-do list for Scott Morrison and his team because uh, we have to have an energy policy and uh, I think he understands that. So let's make sure they come up with an energy policy that's going to work for Australians. Thank you for your thoughts on that and thank you to anyone who has commented particularly to Liam and Mary. And a reminder to please keep sending us more comments, more questions, more suggestions. More is always better in this space. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, on Facebook, where we are Policy Forum Pod, or just drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. And now let's get on to your suggestions for future pods. But before we do so, I'd also like to welcome a few of our new podcast group members. I apologize ahead if I butcher any of your names. I'd like to welcome Holly Halford-Smith, Daniel Rubin, Vildana Anna, Dylan Jones, Becky Kimley, Dan Gregg and Lobesno Meneses to our podcast gang. Thank you so much for joining us. And we had actually uh, quite a funny comment from Lobesno. Hello, Lobesno. Just some quick context. Every time someone joins our podcast group, we ask them a few questions. And one of these questions is, oh, which of our podcasts have you listened to recently? And he, funnily enough, Lobesno wrote, I just binged the last half dozen, so they all melded into one. I didn't even know that Policy Forum was binge-worthy. What do you, what do you think about that, Bob? I, I see think you it laughing has to there. be absolutely binge-worthy. I mean, people <laughs> could do it on Netflix or a whole lot of other stuff. Why not get binge-worthy on this lot? Thank you so much for your comments, Lobesno. We are always really keen to hear your thoughts on the topics that you'd like to see covered on the podcast. So please do jump into the Facebook podcast group and let us know or reach out to us on Twitter. And one last thing. If you enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds. Just find that fifth star. It'll be a big help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. And we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Julia, cheerio. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me as well. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.